you have your Bibles, if you will, look uh, together at Matthew chapter 12. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 14. Mike and Justine, glad to see y'all back and y'all have had kind of a whirlwind of a week and a lot going on. Jackson, I hope, is improving and better and bless the Lord for that. Um, we have had a lot of things going on in the life of the church. I'm grateful for the way that you respond when we send out prayer requests. Thank you. Uh, your grandmother's home and I hope improving and doing well. Uh, we had not mentioned, but Janice's aunt that she had requested prayer for passed away yesterday morning early. Um, she's there uh, trying to help them uh, this morning. So uh, if you will be in prayer for uh, that family as well. You know, we're still considering the reality that Jesus' kingdom uh, is misunderstood. Last week we considered the truth that Jesus' invitation to be a citizen of His kingdom is really an invitation to partake of Him, to have Him. He invites the spiritually weary and burdened, as we heard from His own words, to take up His yoke, put on His yoke, uh, and then to rest. That is to take Him and be about His kingdom's work. We talked about the, the, the tension between putting on a yoke that is meant for work and resting, but they do go together when we look at them in relation to Christ. Fundamental to that work we saw last week is faith in Him. In fact, we close with John 6, 29. I want you to hear it again. This is, Jesus said this, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. Now remember the context. The day that Jesus said that, the day just prior to that, He multiplied five small loaves of bread and two fish, and He fed over 5,000 people with that amount. And, and there was an abundance left over. Twelve basketfuls, in fact, the Gospel writers uh, tell us. The following day, the people were still following Him. And Jesus knew their hearts, and He knew the intention of their hearts, and, and He called them out. And, and this is grace. This isn't condemnation when Jesus calls them out. It's grace. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you are full of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him the Father has set His seal. The response was, what our response probably would have been, well, what must we do? What must we do? Why? What do we need to do for God? And Jesus responded, as we just mentioned, hear it again in that context, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. You see, Jesus had revealed Himself to them. He had shown them the sufficiency of His power. He had displayed the fact that He cared about them and their needs. Why else would He have stopped and, and fed them. He could have done a number of things. It wasn't like they were going to perish. 
Just like if we missed a few meals, we wouldn't perish. They were not going to perish. He wanted them to know that He cared about them. He'd even taught them and they recognized that His teachings were authoritative like nothing they had ever heard before. Their souls had been fed. But when they came looking for Him on that day, they were only interested in following Him because He could fill their stomachs. Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? But that was what they were interested in. They wanted what He could provide. And they were willing to do something to get that. They were willing to work for it. And thus the question, what do we have to do to ensure this provision? Well, they misunderstood the sign. They misunderstood Jesus. They misunderstood His kingdom. And they misunderstood the Father. Does any of that sound remotely familiar? A person wants what only God can supply. But he doesn't want God. He wants what he can get from God. I wonder if we have ever been there. I wonder if maybe even sometimes our thinking today is like that. We want what only God can provide, but we really don't want God. Why mention this? Well, it, because it does sound familiar. Most people are unsure of their greatest need. We know this because we can easily observe their lives and the things they give their attention to, what they invest their time and energy in, the things that concern them, what they say about life, what they say about its purpose, why they believe they exist, where they turn to for help, what they turn to when life becomes challenging. But we also know that Jesus remains by and large misunderstood. And I want you to hear this. When Jesus is misunderstood, God is misunderstood. Don't be confused when you hear people talk about the fact that they believe in God and they have rejected Jesus or they misunderstand Him. They don't know God. You can't know God apart from the Father. You can't, I can't, no one can. Jesus has said so. The Father has said so. He has sent the Son. And we'll hear it on in the text over the course of the next week. That there is no middle ground or neutral position when it comes to Jesus. There is no safe and secure way to misunderstand God the Father, His Son Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear this. You misunderstand them and all of hell's fury will be unleashed. That's the reason last week we started, and you posted it up, I think, Lori, on Instagram. What is, it that we, what, what is it that we need to know? We need to know who Jesus is. We need to make sure that we don't misunderstand Jesus. We misunderstand Him, we misunderstand the Father. We misunderstand the Father, we misunderstand the Holy Spirit. And if we misunderstand the triune God, 
then we have, in essence, called hell's fury down upon us. Let's look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And let's see how Matthew uh, helps us with this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. At that time, sometime close to, as Matthew is, is writing his gospel, sometime close to uh, Jesus having uh, issued this invitation. Okay? And remember what his invitation is. His invitation is, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that in relation to who Jesus is and what He is about. Remember, He is the Messiah King. He's the Son of God. He has come to save His people from their sins. That's Matthew's argument. So at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profaned the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there, and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? That was their purpose behind all of that. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Remember, Matthew is arguing that Jesus is the Messiah King who has come to save His people from their sins. We've already seen that His kingdom isn't limited to the house of Israel, the Jewish people. We might think that after 400 years of waiting for a word from God, that the word, when it came uh, from John uh, to the people, we might would think that they would have understood and would have listened to Him, even when He pointed to Jesus and said, He is the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We 
probably would have thought that they would have received him. But they didn't. No, the fallen nature of man results in hard, cold, rebellious heart. We've heard that through our, our catechisms uh, over the course of weeks. But I, I want us to get a sense of that. That we are not dealing with basically uh, good people. We are not in and of ourselves good. When we are looking at our culture, we're not looking at a group of people, a culture of people who are good. We may like them, we may love them, we may connect with them as we should. But not because they're good. No, they're hard, they're cold, and their hearts are rebellious. And these hard, cold, rebellious hearts reject truth even when truth is so clear and so unambiguous. And remember, it's not as though they had never had revelation. So we're not looking at, we're looking at the Pharisees here today. And we're looking at the people of Jesus' day. It's not as though they did not have revelation. Remember the covenant established with Abraham. They repeatedly recalled it, but even in the covenant that was established with Abraham by the grace of God and the law that was given to Moses by the grace of God and the glory that was associated with David's ministry by the grace of God and the repeated sending of prophet after prophet calling people to repent, pleading with them. The case of righteousness and salvation being found in God alone, all by the grace of God, had by and large been met with resistance, unbelief, continued rebellion. Remember, God had even been gracious in sending the Assyrians and Babylonians to oppress the people, to remind them there is a greater judgment coming. Repent. This, this is important for you and your life. It is important for the generations that follow you that they understand that judgment comes at the end of sin. And God had been gracious in the course of this. And yet, even with that, they continued to rebel. God had been gracious to them in bringing them back out of exile after 70 years and planting them back in their land again and helping them flourish. All of this was by the grace of God pointing to the fact that there was a greater restoration coming. That at the end, that there was something more than this life. Now think about that. In light of John 6.29 In light of people coming to Jesus just to have their stomachs filled. And all along the way, God had been pointing, saying that there are things that are more important. Eternity is coming. And that in me, and in me alone, when we're reading and we're hearing as we did from the psalmist that He is our salvation, all of that pointing that there is salvation that only comes in God. He was saying that the Messiah King would establish a kingdom that would never be overthrown. A kingdom where all the citizens would worship God. The gracious works of God here on earth are always to help us consider a greater work that is to come in Christ. A greater work that has come in Christ. If we are blessed to be healed of a disease, be reminded that it is by the grace of God 
that will not keep you from dying, but it is pointing to the fact that God will one day heal you ultimately if you are in Him and there will be no more sickness. Everything that God does here in a work of grace points to the greater work of Christ, a work that comes in His death and in His resurrection. We hear this from the prophet Jeremiah. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I'll gather them all from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, and I'm going to bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they'll be my people, and I'll be their God. I will, be, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in the land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Jeremiah chapter 22. 32, verses 36 through 41. And then in Isaiah, we hear about God's glory in the final judgment. For behold, the Lord will come in fire in His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For the fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory and I'll set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud and to draw the bow to Tubal and to Javon to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on uh, domedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priest and for Levite, says the Lord. And then he goes on to say this, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name forever. For when for new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. Did you hear it? All flesh will come to worship me. So it isn't as though they didn't have enough revelation. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 attests to the fact that God has given sufficient revelation of His redemptive purposes. You recall that, don't you? Where beginning with Abel, we read account after account of those who believed God, and then we hear this at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, 
since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should be made perfect. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that men and women believed God and embraced His purposes even though they didn't receive what was promised. I don't miss this. God promised, so the promise is going to be fulfilled and realized. They just didn't. The second point is, is that it was going to be realized in Christ. And finally, that even as we wait the consummation and the complete fulfillment of that, we are looking ahead to God's plan. And with that established, we have the Pharisees who should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah King. They should have been keenly aware of Him by the testimony of His work. And yet they did not. What was their response? Well, self-righteousness. They called Him out, charging His disciples with breaking the Sabbath code. The Jewish Sabbath code was extremely detailed. You may have read some about it. You may have heard some about it. It's been said that it was like a mountain hanging by a hair. But remember, the Sabbath law given in the Scripture is not all that detailed. It's really not. It's limited in its instructions. But over time, the list of cans, and mostly cannots, had grown to be exceedingly complicated. And, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt, okay? When they started out originally, they were probably trying to figure out, how in the world can we best keep the Sabbath? We need some instruction. We need, to, uh, we need to define what work is. We need to define what can and can't be done. And it makes sense. It makes sense because one of the reasons why they were sent into exile for 70 years was because they had not kept the Sabbath. We read it. Then I said that I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, and in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the Exodus here. But now, hold on. So I led them out of the land of Egypt, and I brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them my statutes. And I made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths. Why? As a sign between me and them. In other words, as a part of my covenant, that they might know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths were greatly profane. So you can imagine that it would seem natural to go to the extreme efforts to ensure that they don't make this mistake again because they were sent into exile for 70 years. And so that's what's happened. Became so extreme that they outlawed the law. It became way more restrictive than it, ever, it was ever intended. Their interpretation of it just kept mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting. The demands of the law caused the people, listen, to miss 
the intent of the Sabbath. That's what's happening here in Matthew 12. That's the evidence of it. They're turning away from Christ. They're rejecting Him. Remember what God said there in Ezekiel. I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies them. The Sabbath was given to sanctify. It set them apart in a world where they were to bear witness of, and this is what we have seen and heard already this morning, of love and mercy and power. The love and mercy and power of God. But here's what happened. Happened to the Pharisees. The extreme keepers of the law. They became absorbed in their rules. It became an issue of self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness can be understood like this. It is the effort to make one good. In other words, that this is, is self-righteousness. I'm going to make myself good or righteous. And then it's the desire on the backside of that that everyone know that I have made myself good and righteous. There's the act of becoming righteous by oneself. And then there is the act and the attitude of thinking that oneself is righteous by his own doing. They sought to keep the law for the sake of their own righteousness. They made these rules while at the same time despising God. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Hard to imagine. But here's how that fleshed out. They take the command of God and strictly appeal to a code that they devise, a code that they deem important, a code that they know they can keep. It stretches them some. It allows them to do all that they need to do, all that they want to do, but they enforce that upon others and it becomes restrictive of a, toward others. And their keeping of the law draws attention to their own goodness. And what do they miss in the course of it? They miss seeing mercy. They miss giving mercy. They miss receiving mercy. They miss giving mercy. And here's how we know it. Because self-righteousness perverts the grace of God. His self-directed righteousness of the flesh with its end to ultimately be seen as being holy. And I notice how this took shape in the Pharisees. They denied Jesus. How do we know that? Everything that we have looked at before all the signs that he has done, all the healings, all the teachings have been rejected. They denied Jesus. They denied his identity. They denied his power. And they accused his disciples of being lawbreakers. And here's what they were doing with bringing that charge to him about his disciples. They are implicating Jesus in their minds he is not just guilty by association, but he as their leader is responsible for their actions. 
And the actual defense offense of the disciples that committed were picking food to eat because they were hungry. Now look at Jesus' response. Notice what he says. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Well, notice what he doesn't do. Jesus didn't come up and say, God never gave that rule. He doesn't say that. What he does, he begins to show them their lack of understanding of the law. They misunderstand Jesus. They misunderstand the Father. They misunderstand the law. And he draws on this example. He points them back to where David and his men ate forbidden bread. If you're interested in reading about it, 1 Samuel chapter 21, you can read about it. But here's the story. Saul becomes infuriated, just becomes obsessed with killing David. Jonathan, Saul's son, relays a message to David saying, Daddy is going to kill you. They were close enough and the threat was severe enough and it was so urgent that David left immediately with his men and took no provisions. In fact, he didn't even have a sword with him. And they fled. And David stopped by the tabernacle on the way to leave the, the, the area, to leave the, the country. To, to get out of sight, to get into a safe place. And he stops by the tabernacle and he speaks with the priest Ahimelech and he asks him, do you have any provisions? My men and I, we don't have any and we are leaving. He didn't tell him all the circumstances behind the leaving, but the priest said, I don't have anything. The only thing I have is the bread of presence that is on the table of presence. Now we need to go back and look at uh, the giving of the instructions for the tabernacle, but the, but the table of presence was one of the pieces of furniture that God had commanded to be built. It wasn't in the Holy of Holies, but it was outside of the Holy of Holies, and every Sabbath the priest would go in and lay 12 fresh loaves of bread, placing them in the same place, two rows of six, and then every Sabbath they would come back and they would take that bread and they could eat it, the bread that came off, but they were the only people that could eat it. But it pointed to the covenant that God had made with His people and the intimacy that He had with them. Here's why. How many of you have ever gone over to somebody's house to visit or to have a meal and never leave the table that you ate at? You had your meal together, you stayed at that table, and you just sat and you just talked and enjoyed time together. I think about every one of us have. You know why? There is something about the intimacy of table fellowship. This table was there to communicate to the people, you have, we have this kind of relationship. I am in communion with you. You are in communion with me. 
the point of all that is, is that there were rules around this table in the way that it was to be dealt with. But on that day, the priest having no bread and David and his men being in need and the priest even knowing that only priests were to eat of that bread, here were a group of men who needed bread and that was all that he had. And he went and he took those 12 loaves of bread and he gave it to David. We don't hear anything in Scripture about that being condemned. We don't hear anything in Scripture about that being commended until we get here and it just happens and it's given as a part of Jesus' argument not saying that the Sabbath doesn't, the Sabbath's not important. Just simply drawing their attention to this. Jesus pointed to the work of the priest on the Sabbath. Notice the next thing He does. He says, or, in verse 5, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now get, now get this. Jesus points back to something that is... <laughs> any preacher, it, this, if, if we were to consider this our Sabbath, it, it's not, in that sense... There's the Sabbath principle. But, but, if, but if, if, if... I'm working today. Pastors work today. People in ministry work on Sunday. If everybody else isn't supposed to work, they work. Jesus just pointed back to the temple and said, Look, I'm going to give you another example. Everything in the temple has to go on. There are specific things that are supposed to be done on the Sabbath. Two lambs were to be sacrificed every Sabbath. A flower offering and, uh, and an oil offering were brought in and they were given on the Sabbath. The priest had to, uh, had to administer all of this. He said, even the priest in the temple work on the Sabbath and yet they are guiltless. And then notice what Jesus says in verse 6. And I want you to catch these words. I tell you. That's important for us to get. Jesus, because of what He's going to say at the end, He said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here. Think about that for a moment. If even the temple and its operations demanded an exception or some kind of a modification so that the good of the Sabbath for the good of the people in bringing these sacrifices before God, which was a part of God's overall plan, if that good could only be accomplished by the priest working, Carrying out that, wouldn't it make sense that the Christ, the Messiah, of whom everything in the temple pointed to, would be able to demonstrate an appropriate exception or modification to their understanding of what they had made the, the Sabbath become? Well, the reasonable answer to that is, is what? Yes. 
Remember, Jesus had clearly stated on at least one occasion that He came not to set aside the law, but to fulfill it. And He even warned, guess this, He even warned that the law should be kept better than the Pharisees kept the law. It's clear He wasn't encouraging the writing of more rules. He was calling for the people to lovingly keep the law because their love for God who gave the law. His point is, in your attempt to discredit me, you have proven that your accusations are without basis. The law you appeal to is steeped with mercy and concern and the meeting of needs. The law you appeal to points to something greater. It points to the Son of Man who was, as he stated, the Lord of the Sabbath. Now don't miss this. This is the reason why this statement was so important. He said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And notice how he closes it. He said, I tell you, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The point Jesus is making when He says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, the point He's making is, I'm God. Don't miss that. I tell you, I am God. And what He exposes is the fact that they don't understand the law. They don't know the law. They don't know the heart of the law. Because they don't know God. They don't know the God who gave it. Let's press on. Because it's here that he gives an explicit example. He went on from there in verse 9. And he entered their synagogue. Another place of worship, mind you. Not the temple, but the the, the, the temple outpost, if you will, at least for a portion of what needed to take place, the instruction, the teaching, the encouragement, that outpost of the temple that, were, that was in the villages, in the communities. He went on from there and he entered a synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And these same Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then notice that pause that's there. Now, now, we're going to, now we're going to find out why they asked it. They asked it so that they might accuse him. They had accused his disciples. Now they were seeking to accuse him. And notice what he does again. He said to them, and he puts this back on them. He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it? And lift it out. Well, he knows the answer. Jesus knows their answer. He even knows the answer about the initial question. Uh, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He knew that they had made provisions for, and that there was even a statement that they went by, kind of a, a rule that they went by. If it's a life or death situation, absolutely, get them help. In, in, our, in our case, it would be, uh, if, 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 if they're not going to die that day, 
then, then save it and get them help the next day. But if it's apparent that they're going to die today, get them help. He, he knew the answer to that. But he doesn't appeal to that. He just simply puts it back on them and said, Would you help a helpless sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath? And he knew the answer. The answer was, sure they would. Sure they would. If they were in the course of their venture to the synagogue on the Sabbath or to the temple, saw a sheep in a pit, they would reach down and pick the sheep up. Why? Why would you let that sheep suffer? You wouldn't. He turns it back on them and then he makes two points. First, isn't the man more valuable than the sheep? And two, isn't it good to help the man who clearly has a need? And we would say, obviously, yes. But to show them that the law intended and gave evidence that He was the Son of Man who is the Lord of the Sabbath, what does Jesus do? I love this picture. Then He said to the man, in verse 13, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. On that day, that man was the helpless sheep in a pit that needed to be helped. Was his life in danger? No, he had a withered hand. Um, there's at least two uh, young ladies who work up here at Publix when I'm in and out that help at the counter. Uh, one of them uh, actually works the cash register and another one helps um, bag up the groceries and stuff who have uh, withered hands. Uh, when I was reading this again, I was thinking about them. Not a life or death situation for them. They're disabled. They're carrying on. Publix has a provision that allows them to work and they work. Uh, but noticeably that either by accident or from birth, uh, one of their hands and their arms were not fully developed like the other. Can you imagine Jesus just walking by that day and all of this taking place in the synagogue and all of this going on and then at the end of that, he just reaches out and says, stretch out your hand, and He heals. And then the text closes in this way. It's, there is a... The bomb drops now. Okay? The bomb drops. Verse 14, But the Pharisees... The sheep went out healed... <laughs> The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Here's what Matthew was saying. They were so misunderstood Jesus. So misunderstood the law. So misunderstood God. That they would 
not allow for a man to pick grain just to eat that day when he was hungry and would not allow in their system and in their self-righteousness for a man with a withered hand to be healed, what they do allow for is the plotting of a murder. You see how the bomb drops? How in the course of all of this, they are willing to plot and plan the murder of God rather than see a fellow human being helped or a fellow human being have food. Jesus teaches us in this passage that showing mercy is always right. We can never allow our concern for our religious duties, our coming here, our gathering here, to make us think that somehow or another that this is what being a believer is about. What being a follower of Christ is about. It is about gathering and worshiping. We are doing that. But if all we do is gather here, but our hearts are not merciful and gracious toward each other, and if our hearts are not merciful and gracious toward the lost, if we don't care about people enough to proclaim the message of the gospel and to help them, then we have misunderstood Jesus. We have misunderstood His kingdom. We have misunderstood the Father. We have misunderstood the intent of God's redemption. We've misunderstood our witness in the world. William Hendrickson said this, Ethical conduct is ever far more important than ceremonial obedience. We must never use religion as an excuse to avoid showing mercy. I don't want us to forget this. We have posted up on our signs across our wall when you come in to love God supremely, to love others sacrificially, to live in the world distinctively. You know what this passage teaches us? To love God supremely. To love others sacrificially. To show compassion and mercy toward those who are hurting. Why? Because in the course of that, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, who are weary, who are spiritually burdened. They may also be physically burdened. But we see that Jesus is about being compassionate and merciful to the end that people see Him so that they can know the Father. This isn't just about doing good. It is about doing good so that the Father is known and seen. I think that if we think about this, that we will see how far we have to go individually in this area in our own lives.
and maybe in the course of it, we'll better understand what it means to know God, to love Him, to walk in obedience, to be people who seek after justice, who extend mercy, who are compassionate. It's not enough for us to approach this text just to uncover what Matthew has to say for the sake of knowing what he has to say. Matthew was bearing out the fact that this Messiah King, this one who has authority, this one who is Lord of the Sabbath, this one who is better than the temple and greater than the temple, is the one to whom we should bow and yield and love and follow and trust. We can't do that rightly unless we understand Him. I think Matthew has helped us. I know he's helped me understand Him. And by the grace of God, be moved to give real consideration to you and to others. Pray with me if you will. Father, we desire to to love and honor, to obey You, to praise You, to worship You rightly. Father, our theological correctness is important. But if in the course of our bent toward knowing You, we miss knowing You and just come to know things about You that we can state them rightly and in that fail to see the people who are hurting, fail to do anything about those who need You, then we have missed understood You and we don't want that. Father, I'm fearful in my own life of acting and thinking and being like a Pharisee. Would You be gracious toward us in working our hearts in such a way that we not stand in condemnation of them, but see the fallacy and the failures of self-righteousness and high-mindedness and work in us in such a way that we would, in humility, serve and care for each other genuinely and serve and care for our community genuinely that they may know You. We pray this in the name of Jesus who is greater than the temple 
and Lord of the Sabbath. Amen.